I don't know if you've ever been terrified, but it is an awful feeling. I remember as a kid being intensely fearful, had a wild imagination, and every time I was in darkness, I would, I would just be utterly petrified, couldn't stand to be in the dark. And it's interesting when you're a kid and you feel that kind of intense fear, whether it's something under your bed or in your closet or maybe it's just darkness as a whole or who knows what it is. No matter what it is, it's, it's interesting the things that you cling to for protection. And it's weird, too, because you find that those things frequently don't actually provide much protection at all. The kid is huddled up in his bed and he's got his comforter up near his cheeks as if that thin layer of, you know, cloth is going to protect him from whatever is out there or whatever he's afraid of. It doesn't, but somehow it brings him comfort, or perhaps it's a stuffed animal or a pillow or, or whatever. But you know, what I realized, I, th- I thought when I was a kid, like, there's going to come a day where I will no longer be afraid, and I can't wait till that day happens. And I, I'm, I still can't wait till that day happens. <laughs> The fears, it turns out, just they just change, don't they? they? They perhaps get a little bit more advanced, or they change a little bit in nature, and it may not be the dark anymore. It's probably things that are in the light, but it, it goes from, from being imaginary things to being maybe very real things, or things still imagined. How your kids are going to grow up, and what they're going to fare, how they're going to fare in the world around them, or what's going to take them down, or, or perhaps it's health when, when is my health going to go, or, or how is it going to go, or, or maybe it's death that awaits you, or maybe it's a doctor visit, or maybe it's this or that. The point is, it, it changes a little bit as you get older, but fear never goes away. But then there is the question that should come to us is, where do I go for protection? When I'm most afraid... When I'm, I'm most terrified, where do I run to protection? In many ways, our passage is about that. It's going to take us a little bit to get there, but if you look at the pages that are before us, you see that David is on the run from Saul. And, and I've said that before in sermons, and I'm going to keep saying that for a little while now because David is going to be on the run quite a bit from Saul. But you understand, over the course of 1 Samuel, there is quite a bit that has taken place to bring us to this point that we're at right now. Since we began studying this book back in August, I want to remind you of a couple things as we go back through the book of 1 Samuel. We're not going to trace our way through every event that's taken place. I only want to bring your attention to the things that are really important for the passage that is in front of us today. First thing I want you to remember is that at the beginning of the book, there is this priest, and his name is Eli. And he's a good bit older, so much so that his sons are also older, and they're serving as priests. They've taken up the family business, you see. And there's a big problem at the beginning of the book. And it's that Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, don't know God. Now, that turns out to be a really big problem if you're a priest of God, if you don't know him, right? That's a huge issue. And so they're serving in the temple of God, and they're committing sin after sin after sin, and there's 
There's a few that are put in front of us that are told to us as specifically their sins. One of them is that they're taking the fatty portions of the sacrifice. So people bring their sacrifice, the fatty portions are left for the Lord, and they're sticking their fork in and they're pulling out some of those fatty portions before they're burnt up because, let's be honest, those are the ones that taste the best. All right? It's as simple as that. All right? It tastes good. Okay? So they put their fork in and they're taking the fatty portions, which is a big deal because they're corrupting the sacrifice that is for the Lord. Okay? Huge problem. Second big sin that they're committing is that there are ladies that are serving in the temple that are kept for God, meaning they don't have a husband, they're virgins. And they are corrupting those ladies. We're just going to leave it at that. So there is a multitude of sins that they're committing, and it's egregious, these sins. And Eli warns them, but he really doesn't do what's necessary to get them out of the priesthood. Understand? And so, God eventually tells Eli that because of his corruption and the corruption of his sons, he's going to do something different. So he grants, he opens the womb of this lady named Hannah, who has a child named Samuel, she gives Samuel to the priest, Eli, to be raised in the temple. She dedicates him to the Lord. That was a condition for, for God opening her womb. And God is going to begin speaking through Samuel and rejects Eli altogether. In fact, God tells Eli on one of several occasions in chapter 2, verse 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from the altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Now, we've read our passage this morning, and we've seen that this is coming to bear even now on our passage. So Eli and his house, that means his sons, his descendants, all of them, are set to be judged, and they're going to be judged in horrific ways. They're going to all die by the swords of men, and the only one that's going to be left is going to be left to weep his eyes out, which turns out to be Abiathar, who runs to David. So, flash forward in the story, remember Israel then rejects God as king. They lose in a battle and, and they reject God as king. And really they reject Samuel, whom God has appointed to be a judge over them. And so they ask for a king and they want a king like all the other nations. And God says, fine, I'll give you a king like all the other nations. And so God gives them Saul, which turns out, to be a kind of judgment for them, for asking for a king. At the beginning of his reign, Saul is really the worst of both worlds. Remember when he's first announced to Israel after he's anointed and he's introduced to Israel and everybody go and Samuel's like, here's Saul, and there's nobody there. And, so, and all of Israel's like, oh, where, where's Saul? And they're like... I, you know what? I don't know. I, he was around here earlier. I thought I saw him back there a minute ago. And so, so where is he? Well, let me ask the Lord. And, and the Lord's like, he's, he's over by the baggage. And so they have to go and they have to look for 
Saul, and he's hiding out among the baggage. He's cowering in fear. And so that's not great, right, for your king to be terrified. And where does he run? For comfort, he runs to the baggage. Maybe he can hide himself. And, and on the surface, it's not all that bad. Because after all, I mean, Israel's kings are not supposed to be power-hungry like the rest of the world. So in some sense, it's like, well, Saul is at least not power-hungry. He seems to not want to be king at all. On the other hand, it doesn't inspire the most confidence in your king that he is terrified to actually be king. He's hiding among the baggage. But then, so that's, that's one thing, that's bad enough, but then at the end of his reign, he turns into this tyrant that can't be tolerated in his own country. He's rejected by God, and, and somebody else has to replace him. So, so it's really the worst of both worlds. You have a coward on the front end, and on the back end, you have a tyrant. And never in between is there like this strong political leader that really inspires the hearts of people to come back to the Lord. Similar to Eli, Saul is also told that he's not going to be king and that the Lord is going to replace him with someone who actually desires to obey him. He calls him a man after God's own heart. And so eventually we find out that is David. David is selected uh, as the king to replace Saul and Samuel goes to anoint him. And he, here's where it, everything kind of changes. And this is where the book of Samuel is kind of the, the middle point of the book of 1 Samuel is immediately following David's anointing. This is what we read in 1 Samuel 16, verses 13 and 14. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So there's this exchange that takes place. After David is anointed, David receives the Spirit of the Lord. It rushes upon him. And Saul receives a tormenting spirit from the Lord. Not the Spirit of the Lord, a tormenting spirit from the Lord. The Lord leaves, the Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul and a tormenting spirit comes in to replace it. So in these two little verses, right here in the middle of 1 Samuel, it's sort of the narrator's way of explaining to you everything that happens from here on out. Everything that you see happen from here on out can be explained through this lens. Why does David win wherever he goes? Why does he have so many battles and so many victories? Why does he defeat so many Philistines? Saul requires him to pay a price for his daughter, and he, he doubles the price. Why? Is he able to successfully do that? Why is it in the last passage that Jeremy preached on last week, why is it that, that David goes to Achish in the land of the Philistines and acts like a crazy man, and Achish buys it and lets him go? Even if he has Goliath's sword in his hand, he still lets him go. He's a crazy man. Why does that work? Well, the Spirit of the Lord has rushed upon him and is granting him favor wherever he goes. Now, on the flip side, why is it that Saul is losing so much favor among his people? Why is he losing wherever he goes? Why does Saul want to kill David? Why is Saul so paranoid about everything? Why does his own son align with David 
even at his own father's expense. Why does he fly off the handle from time to time and need David to play the liar just to soothe him? Because a harmful spirit from the Lord has come to torment him. And that spirit has come to him as God's means of judgment against Saul and against his line. So that that forms a filter for how we see everything that's happening in the passage that we've got in front of us this morning. So look at our passage this morning. The story opens and Saul is under a tamarisk tree with a spear in his hand. And I want, I'm hoping maybe we can capture the feeling that is here at the beginning of this passage. Saul under the tamarisk tree with a spear in his hand. This is where the leader would gather his counsel. They're in the shade, right? They're, they're there talking. Everybody's taking a knee in front of the coach, right? He's gathered his counsel together, and he's got his spear in his hand. And it seems that all of his counsel is made up of his own tribe, that is, the tribe of Benjamin. And so notice that his gun isn't holstered. It was his spear, but you get the idea. If you can imagine a movie, maybe like an old western, and you've got this guy up there who's kind of like the leader, and he's got all his counsel around him, he's got his gun in his hand, and he's sort of just waving it around as he's ranting, as he walks back and forth. You can kind of get the feeling of what's happening around here. His gun isn't holstered. He's waving it around in the air. And the details of this story at the very opening of the passage they're, they're really meant to kind of give you an indication of Saul's temperament. He's in an aggressive position to begin with. And if you're watching this scene and you're seeing that movie that you've probably seen a number of times where the leader is kind of running around like this with kind of talking crazy and waving his gun in his air, you know that guy's getting ready to do something foolish, right? You know he, he's up to no good and one of these guys in the council is probably going to get it here in just a second. And so it becomes clear that he's not happy with the circumstances that he's in. He tells them in verse 7, you know, why are you, some of you so loyal to the son of Jesse? How come some of you are so loyal to the son of Jesse? Now what you need to pay attention to, especially as Saul gets more crazy, you can identify the people that are an enemy of David or a friend of David by how they refer to his name. Saul will nearly always call him the son of Jesse, right? Refuses to call him by name. And the friends, like the priest that comes up in just a minute, will call him David by name. So it gives you a kind of clue as to whether or not they're friend or foe. But you can gather Saul isn't happy. He asks his leaders, is David going to give you a bunch of land? Is he the one that's going to put you in positions of power like I have done? So presumably, Saul has taken people from his own tribe. He's elevated them. He's given them status and power. He's given them powerful positions. He's given them land. And then he even turns to Jonathan, uh, to his own counsel. He talks about Jonathan in verse 8. You know, Jonathan has stirred David up against me, he says. Notice how now he's convinced that David certainly is blameworthy. He deserves to die, obviously. But you know what? It's actually Jonathan that stirred David up against me. Now, maybe he thinks that Jonathan is gunning for his throne or his position, which we know, just by reading 1 Samuel, couldn't be further from the truth. 
But he thinks Jonathan is coming after his throne, and he's stirred David up. He's using David as a pawn against me. Both of them need to die. But whatever Jonathan's motives are, he stirred David up, and he says to the council, all of you knew it, and you did nothing about it. You didn't tell me. All of you knew. Jonathan and David were conspiring against each other. No one disclosed it from me. See, a spirit from the Lord is tormenting Saul, and as such, what happens? But he becomes a radical conspiracy theorist. Don't get me wrong. I love a good conspiracy. They're fun. Saul believes it. He's bought in, hook, line, and sinker. And who is listening to Saul's crazy ramblings but old Doeg the Edomite? Doeg the Edomite is listening in. And you'll remember Doeg. He was in the previous passage. And we learned back there that he was the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So he's a member of the council. And he's gathered here under the Tamish tree listening to all of Saul's crazy ramblings. And remember, he was there when all the events unfolded from last chapter. He saw that. And apparently, David even knew Doeg was there. He saw him when he came up. And he even wondered, and he tells us that at the end of the passage, I knew it when I saw him. I knew I shouldn't have trusted him. But he did anyway. And he knew that he was going to rat him out. And so Doeg uses this moment to kind of pipe up. Saul is criticizing his whole council, and Doeg certainly wants to separate himself from the rest of the council. And so he speaks up there in verse 9. Look with me. He says, Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse. There you go, you first clue. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now, this is a lie masquerading as the truth. Okay? Because it is true that uh, Ahimelech did give David provisions. He gave him the showbread. And it is true that he did give him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So those parts are true. But what Doeg does not say, and what he hid, was that David deceived Ahimelech into thinking that he was on a mission for, from Saul. And that the only reason Ahimelech helped him was because he thought he was there under true pretenses. That he was there on behalf of Saul, and that's why he gave him help. Doeg hides this. Now, don't you have to ask, why would Doeg want to do that? Why would, why would he want to throw the priests under the bus, namely Ahimelech? Why wouldn't he just say, you know, David came, and he deceived Ahimelech, and took from the temple... And he took the sword and tricked the priests into giving him help. And I know where he went. He went out that way. And you can go out that way and maybe we can find him. Why wouldn't Doeg say that? Why does Doeg feel the need to feed into Saul's paranoia by telling him what he wants to hear? In the end, he's no doubt trying to advance himself in Saul's sight. And he can have no competitors in this. Isn't this how things normally go? In fact, 
Maybe if we just look in the mirror for just a second, aren't we also prone to surround ourselves with people who tell us what we want to hear? Or perhaps, aren't you often tempted to tell someone around you exactly what they want to hear so that they like you? Isn't that true of us? Are you the contrarian? The one who likes to sit beside someone and say, no, no, brother, sister, that, that's sin. You don't need it. Is that you? Do you love, you relish that position? Do you love being the one that's told, this is sinful, you got it wrong here? No, in fact, we like to surround ourselves with people who tell us what we want to hear. And we like to be the one to tell people what we want to hear. And what we find is this is true across all of humanity. The person that's bitter or angry towards someone else normally makes friends with the gossip who's ready to feed into their bitterness and anger. They surround themselves with people that say, yeah, you know what? You should be angry. You have a right to be embittered toward that person. I see what you're saying. I think we would all be in that position if we were you. Maybe you've been the embittered one, or maybe you've been the gossip that's come around and said, I want to encourage you in your bitterness. The power-hungry man often surrounds himself with yes-men. How often do you see the power-hungry man with employees who constantly tell him no? It really doesn't happen. Maybe you've been the power-hungry. Maybe you've been the yes-man. The bully is never alone. You notice that? He always has an entourage, and the entourage is there. They're petrified little clingers who want to laugh at everything that he does. And mainly the reason is they hope that his bullying eye isn't turned on them. So they join in. They tell him what he wants to hear. Maybe you've been the bully. Maybe you've been the entourage. Or maybe you've been the object of the bully's ridicule. But the point is that I think if we look deep down enough in our heart, we'll see there's a little bit of Saul or a little bit of Doeg in all of us. Doeg's certainly there wanting to join the bully in his paranoia and say, not just them, it's the priest too. Everybody's against you, Saul. I'm the only one on your side. It's actually quite common. Maybe your ego is so fragile that like Saul, if someone isn't constantly telling you how much they love you, you just assume that they're up to no good. And they must hate you. They must not care anything for you. Or maybe you're so desperate for power or notoriety, you'll compromise your own integrity, you'll change your personality, you'll joke about things that you normally wouldn't just to advance yourself in the eyes of your superior. You know people like this, maybe, if it's not you, who alter the way that they behave or the way that they talk around a superior so as to advance themselves. See, the nature of the fall is such that we've all got a piece of Saul or Doeg within us. But look at what it costs. Saul takes the information of Doeg and he sends for Ahimelech and everyone in his father's household, that, that is, his brothers, his sisters, his sons, his nephews, his daughters, everyone 
in his house or connected to his father's house. And he accuses now the priests of the conspiracy. Verse 13, Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as this day? And Ahimelech's defense is pretty solid. If you look at it, he says in verse 14, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. It's a pretty tight, airtight argument. Are you kidding me? He's your son-in-law. He's the head of your bodyguard. He's a priest. I, this is not the first day that I've prayed for him. I've prayed for him quite a bit. Well, I didn't know anything about this whole thing that you're talking about, this conspiracy to overthrow you. What are you talking about? But regardless of his defense, which is basically how was I supposed to know any of that, in spite of all that, Saul is going to kill Ahimelech and all his father's house. And so he turns to his counsel and he says, Hey guys, go to it. You've got to kill this guy. The only problem is, no one will do it. He tells all of his servants, you got to kill him. It's like a scene from a movie. They all look at each other. Which one of you is going to dive that far into depravity in order to kill innocent people and slaughter them right here? Priests of God. Which one of you is going to do that? No one, it seems. So what does Doeg get? for his desire to feed into Saul's paranoia to reach the top. He gets to be the one to kill priests. But pay very close attention to what the author says in the text. Look at verse 18. Pay really close attention. Think about this for just a second. The king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, donkey, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. Now, if you are one that writes in your Bible... You should underline that last part in verse 19. He put to the sword man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. And you should write out beside of it 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Now, if you hear that pattern, man, woman, child, infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, it should remind you of something that Saul was commanded to do back there in 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. This is what he said to him. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And the only difference in those two passages is that the Amalekites have some camels. Outside of that, 
it is nearly identical what Saul was commanded to do to the Amalekites and what Doeg did to the priests of God. Saul was told to go in and kill the Amalekites and devote them to destruction. You see what's happening here? This was a commanded holy war by God. And now, this raises all kinds of questions when we read passages like this. These are hard to read, and they're, they're difficult to wrap our minds around, and they're, they're often difficult to even understand how is it that God could command such a thing. But, and, and it's another sermon for another day or another topic for another time. But what we should understand is that God is commanding from Saul a holy war against the Amalekites. Everything that has the name Amalekite on it, I don't care if it's a person or an animal, I want you to burn it to the ground. Every single thing. It is a holy war. In a sense, what God is saying to Saul is I want you to take every single one of them and I want you to turn them over to me in judgment. I want you to give them to me. But what you have to understand is that Saul didn't do this. In fact, he kept the best of the animals. He kept Agag, the king of the Amalekites. He kept all the powerful and the rich and the wealth and the possessions for himself and for his people. He didn't obey the Lord in the holy war that he was commissioning. And in fact, this is one of the reasons why Saul is replaced on the throne. But now flash forward to the passage that we're in today, and it's not God's honor that's at stake, it's Saul's honor that is at stake. And in his paranoia, he thinks that the priests are out to get him as well. My own honor has been, is now at stake, and so what does he do? But he devotes the entire city of Nob to destruction. The city that the author pauses to remind us is a city of the priests. It's God's priestly city, remember. This is not just a city of man. It is a city of God's priests. But do you see what Saul is doing? By laying to waste every person in the city of Nob, the city of the priests, who are priests of God, he is declaring a holy war on God himself. Now, he may not know that, he may not intend that. That may not be at the forefront of his mind. It may just be some crazy paranoia that he's flown off into. But regardless, what the author is wanting you to see by drawing these connections is that the holy war he was supposed to carry out, he didn't when God's honor was at stake. But when his honor is at stake, he carries out a holy war. But the difference is his holy war is against God. Look at how far things have come in just a few short chapters. We started out with this scared king who was hiding among the baggage, petrified to take leadership. A king that was anointed as king over God's people, and then right after that, turns and routs Nachash, the serpent there in Ammon. You remember that? Chapter 11. Does what God is requiring of him and, and temporarily begins to unite Israel under his leadership. Remember that? 
That, that man who was at first scared, but then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went out to battle, and he led so many people, and he had victory after victory, and he had quite an impressive military career. He freed God's people so many times from the oppression of their enemies. And here he stands in chapter 22, diametrically opposed to God. Declaring a holy war against the one who anointed him to serve on his behalf. How many chapters? 12, 13 chapters? All of a sudden, here is where Saul is. Perhaps this might be the lowest point in all of Saul's life that he reaches here. One can only think that at the beginning... Saul was probably pretty optimistic. After realizing this was going to be his lot, he was going to be king, going into battle against Ammon and defeating them, you've got to think that Saul was probably pretty optimistic about his kingdom and his service to God. And now he's declared God his enemy. So it's worth asking the question, I think, for us, how did we get here? How did it happen that we're here because I don't know about you, as we look at Saul, the last thing that I want to be is someone who made a shipwreck of their life and after so long serving the Lord, now finds myself God's enemy. That's the last place that I want to be. Someone who is once considered his servant, now looking up and finding myself as his enemy. What we find when we survey the wreckage of Saul's kingship, it began with one seemingly minor sin. You remember this? Saul is told, he has kind of a standing order, that anytime you're going into war, Samuel's going to come and consecrate the army. You need to wait seven days, and Samuel's going to come consecrate the army. And he's told, you just need to wait those seven days. But instead of waiting for Samuel, he waits the seven days, but Samuel's a little bit late. And so Saul says, bring me the sacrifice. I'm just going to do it myself. I'm going to consecrate the army. And he disobeyed the voice of the Lord. Now you look at that and, and we're like, wow, it's, it's minor. I mean, come on, really? Just one little thing that he did there. But if you zoom in on the crash site, you get really, really close and you start really looking at all the details of the crash. What you find is actually a king who is terrified. He's petrified when he sees all of his people fleeing from the army of the Philistines. He's absolutely scared. And where does he run but to disobedience? And Samuel comes up to him right after the sacrifice. And Saul starts making excuses. Hey, buddy, friend, there you are. Been waiting on you. Listen, Samuel says, what have you done? And here's what Saul says in chapter 13, verse 11. When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days you appointed, days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Excuse, excuse. Excuse, excuse, excuse. 
You know the one thing that he never says? Lord, forgive me. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I'm a wicked sinner who is terrified of my own shadow. I have disobeyed. Please don't hold this transgression against me or your people. He doesn't say that. In fact, he refuses to say that. And what he says makes it sound like it's an apology, doesn't it? It's craftily worded. He tries to get around. But actually, it's an excuse. Everyone else is the cause. Everyone else is the reason for my sin. It's not me. It's everyone else. Samuel was late. The people were fleeing. The Philistines were threatening. You know, it wasn't even something I wanted to do. My own body had to force me to actually do it. Can you believe it? Everyone but him is the reason for his sin. So he follows that up with failing to sacrifice to the Lord all the things that were required when he defeated the Amalekites, uh, the, the Ammonites. And there it was. Oh, the people wanted to keep the best in order to, keep, to, to prepare them for sacrifice. This is what he told Samuel. I, I, just, I wanted to, we were going to keep it. The people wanted to keep it because they were going to sacrifice. That's the reason we didn't kill everything like you told us to because we wanted to sacrifice. We, we were doing what's right. That's why. And what do we find in this passage? Saul, the crazy conspiracist, is blaming all of these other sources for the collapse of his kingdom. David is against me. My own son is against me. Council, you knew about it, and you are against me. These priests, they're against me. They're the problem. Where do you find yourself this morning? What's the reason for your sin? Like Saul, are you in some range of hardening your heart against the Lord's commands? Now, I think when we say that, there are people in this room that are Christians, the vast majority. There are people in this room that are not Christians. And I think when we say hardening your heart, running to Jesus, trusting the Lord... Sounds like this nebulous thing out there. I don't really know what that means. I don't, what does that even mean? How do I know if I'm hardening my heart against the Lord? Well, let's start with this. Like Saul, has everyone else become the reason for your sin? Do you see your sin? And then instead of bowing before God and confessing it and repenting of it, would you rather point the finger at others? They're the reason for my sin. Is everyone else the reason for your anger? Parent, have you ever said, if these kids would just listen to me the first time, I wouldn't have to get angry like this. I wouldn't have to yell like this. I've been told people say that. I don't. Is everyone else the reason for your bitterness? They're intentionally trying to make my life miserable. I know. They're behind the scenes, petting the white cat, thinking how they're going to take over and ruin my life. Isn't that how we think of people? The villain in the story? Is God's material blessing the reason for your unrestrained greed 
this amazing? We can be greedy and we can blame God for it. You know, God is just blessing me so much. This, this purchase, it didn't even seem, you know, it wasn't even that much, honestly, because God has just blessed me so much. And then month after month, we continue to add to the toy chest. And we masquerade all our feelings of really desire for new things under God's blessing. Is immodesty of others the reason for your lust? They know how they're dressing. They know what they're doing. They know what they're trying to get me to see. Uh Uh-huh. I know. That's the reason for my lust. If they wouldn't dress that way, then I wouldn't. Is personal hardship the reason for your unbelief? How could a loving God allow this kind of thing to happen to me? And when we dig down, we've all got Saul in us. All of these things, from anger and bitterness and greed and lust, all the way to unbelief, it's your sin. It's 100% yours. Now, there might be thousands of people that are connected to it. Some people carry in lots of baggage from their life. Maybe an abusive father or parent somewhere down the line has caused you to question the Lord and, and, and wonder in unbelief and, and make no mistake about it, their sin is accounted for and they will be held accountable to that sin. There's no doubt about that. It still does not excuse your sin of unbelief. Same evidence is before you too. You know, I've seen tons of times in the Bible a whole bunch of people that bring their excuses for their sin to the prophet or bring their excuses to God, and yet I've never heard God say, you know what, I've never thought about it that way. You know, you're right. I can't believe I pulled you over. Just make your own way down the road. You know, I'll go get that guy who is going faster than you. I'll go track him down. No. The question is always put to them, and what's your excuse? Adam sins, he blames his wife, and all of his children, which we are them, have been blaming someone else ever since. But we tell our kids all the time in our house, and mainly because we need to know it too, that we sin because we're sinners But the question is, what happens next? Sin puts us all on evil footing, even footing. Well, on evil footing too, but on even footing. We're all all in that same boat together. But the question is, what happens next? Where do you go with that sin? What do you do now? I'm caught. I've been called out. And maybe I didn't hit your sin on the list, but you know if I kept going, I could. And you know what that sin is that you're thinking about. But the question is, what are you going to do about it? If you want to continue to ignore the call to repentance, then just like Saul, after going to church for all these years, you're going to find yourself standing opposite of God as His enemy. Where you might be thinking right now, I'm I'm, I'm on God's team. 
In reality, like Saul, you're standing diametrically opposed to him because you continue to ignore sin that's clearly in your life. And as hard as it is to eat crow and to to know what you've got to do, you continue to harden your heart against the Lord. That's what it means. Here's my sin. It's not sin. It's somebody else's fault. One of the priests escapes. Abiathar is his name. He tells David what Doeg did. And it makes David angry. In fact, David immortalizes Doeg in Psalm 52. You can go read that later. But this passage is maybe the most bottom-heavy passage in all of the Scriptures. And I don't know how you measure that, but it feels very bottom-heavy to me. You really get the weight of the passage when you get to the very end. You've seen all this that Saul has done. He's executed an entire city of priests. And it feels so dark and it feels awful. But the last three sentences of this passage bring so much light and they really provide a way forward for all who wish to follow the Lord. Look at first at verse 22. Look at what David says. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Do you feel how opposite that is from Saul? Really think about that for just a second. How radically different that is from what we've just seen with Saul. I'm not even sure David is really guilty of anything. And David tells Abiathar, I can't help but feel and shoulder the burden of responsibility for everything that's happened to your family. He apologizes for doing what he had to do to save his life. This couldn't be more opposite than what we find in Saul. But then we see what he says in verse 23. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Now, there's two passages that I want to read in just a minute and that I'm going to get to. But I want to take a step back and just say for just a second, this is often the time in the passage, in the sermon, where we talk about how this reminds us of the gospel. And it's important that we do that. But sometimes we get to that gospel connection, and maybe you're left feeling like, what does this have to do with Jesus? Uh, I don't see that. Or, or maybe... You're thinking, what is, in fact, what does First Samuel at all have to do really with me? You need, to under, you need to understand and you need to ask the question, why is this passage here? Why did God record this in his word? Here's the thing. David tells Abiathar, get behind me. If he wants you, he's going to have to go through me first because he wants my life too. So I'll stand in between you and him. But what you have to understand is that this book was compiled after David's dead. So if the author is trying to remind Israel, therefore, you need to trust David too, he missed his opportunity. David died. How are we supposed to get behind a dead guy? You see, the author's not reminding us of that. The author is saying, the line that God has chosen to rule over his people 
It's the line of David. And what he's reminding Israel, get behind God's king. The only protection that you'll ever have, the only protection that's lasting is behind God's king. Whether Israel is in bondage in Babylon or in Assyria, or whether the Christian is now in the church hearing a sermon from 1 Samuel 22, the message remains the same. God has put a king on the throne who is from the line of David and he will never remove that king from his throne. In fact, his lineage will always be his kingdom will have no end. And all of those who wish to have protection from wrath must get behind him. See, the Christ connection here, the connection to the gospel is obvious. This is what the Bible is telling us. But you have to understand, Christian, whether you know it or not, the enemies of Christ are all around you. You are being thrashed by Satan right this very moment as you're tempted to flee into thoughts, as you're tempted to continue in unbelief, as you're tempted to see the sin that's in front of you and harden your heart and reject it altogether. And say, that's not me, that's his fault. That's their fault. That's not my sin. All that's happening is you are right now in the process of following hard after Saul and standing diametrically opposed as an enemy of God. It puts you in very dangerous territory. I'll give you a litmus test. If there's anyone right now, if there's anyone inside the body of Christ that you're mad at, you're already on that path. You understand that? That's not what he has created. He has not created a body that is frustrated with one another. He's not created a body that is mad at one another. He's created a body that is going to dwell with each other for all of eternity, that calls each other brother and sister, whose allegiance to one another is greater than that of their own family. He has not brought hostility between you and someone else. So if there exists hostility between you and someone else, as Saul is hostile towards David, you're already on the path. So the question is, what happens now? What do you do with it? Forgive. Maybe confront. See, what does it mean when we say we must run to Christ for protection? It means softening your heart. It means repenting of sin. It means owning it. I have unbelief. I have anger. I have bitterness. I have hostility. I have lust. And you go, but you know how much that is? That's a lot. And it is a lot. And, and my own children even sit around the table and they talk about sin and they go, I, it's, it's hard to imagine. 
But what happens is the amount of sin in your life continues to draw you closer to the cross because you start to realize just how much you are forgiven by Jesus. And at the point where you start to confess your sins, where you start to turn inward and you start to look at all the sin that's in your own heart instead of looking at the sins against you from other people, you start to look at the sin in your own heart, what it does is cause you to cling even harder to the cross. And all of a sudden, the sin of other people becomes a very loose thing in your hand. And you're willing to give them a lot more grace because you're starting to see just how much Christ has forgiven you. And all of a sudden, you become a different person altogether. Instead of harboring bitterness and anger and hatred and lust and all of these sins, which you're guilty, you know you're guilty, all of a sudden you turn loose of them. And, and all of those sins, they, they might still be there and you might still struggle with them, but what they do now is they serve to push you closer and closer and closer to God's King. And now your life becomes one of reliance. I depend on the forgiveness and salvation that I have in Christ. So then you sing, here is love, vast as the ocean. Loving kindness as a flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. And becomes a precious treasure for you. And then what you realize is to be harbored and sheltered behind the cross. Behind God's true king. Means that no one can touch you. Because in order to touch you, they're going to have to go through him first. So Paul comes in in Romans Chapter 8, verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, uh, who, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation, not Doeg the Edomite or anybody else, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God will protect those who trust in His anointed. If you have sin that's in front of you, join the club. We all do. Press hard into the cross. Find forgiveness and mercy there. And trust that in the end, He's going to spare your life in the age to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for those in this room, like me, who find themselves often in a place of hard-heartedness, bitterness, anger, greed, lust, pride, and unrepentance, that you would tear all of that down and grant us life 
under the reign of King Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. And we're going to sing.